Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Zoe Orchengwa. Zoe is the CEO and co-founder of Emilio, a free-to-use communications and education technology to create a more humane and rehabilitative correction system. Zoe holds a Master's of Philosophy degree in Criminology from the University of Cambridge. He is also a joint degree student at Yale Law School and Yale School of Management. He has received a Gates Cambridge Scholarship, Truman Scholarship, and Paul and Daisy Soros Fellowship for New Americans. His technology nonprofit has garnered funding from tech luminaries Vinod Koshla, Jack Dorsey, and Eric Schmidt. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Zo Orchengwa. So welcome. Zoe is the CEO and co-founder of Emilio, and uh, we're very happy to have him here today. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity. Well, please tell us more about yourself and your background. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Chicago, uh, Chicago, Illinois, to uh, two Nigerian immigrant uh, parents. Um, we subsequently moved back to Nigeria. Uh, when I was around six months old, um, uh, we moved back to Aba, Nigeria. Um, and that's where I lived until uh, I was around eight and a half years. And uh, we moved back uh, to uh, the US. We moved to Hartford, Connecticut first, and then subsequently moved to West Hartford, Connecticut after uh, my mother learned that the school system, the public school system was a lot better in West Hartford. So uh, that's kind of my origin story. Um, so I've kind of always, um, uh, you know, felt that 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 uh, I have two homes. Um, you know, I have, um, yeah, two 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 homes. Um, born here, uh, spent the early part of my life in Nigeria, but uh, came back, and, and so very much a Nigerian American. Um, yeah, I I as a Turkish American, I call it like the in betweeners. So it became a nickname of tweeners. <laughs> like we have two homes and never really like settle in one and always have a mind for the other two. So happy to meet another tweener. Um, so I would love to hear about, um, I guess the problems that you've seen maybe growing up in uh, where you did in US and what kind of maybe gave you the early ideas of even starting an organization like Emilio. Yeah, let's take a step back uh, a little bit further to uh, my upbringing in Nigeria, because um, it's kind of there where where I think the my passion for um, you know addressing issues of poverty, addressing issues of inequality, really began. Um, so uh, my father was a physician in Nigeria, so we were fairly well off uh, at the time. Um, but Aba is a very, very challenging place to live. It's it's uh, a very, very poor city, but it's also a commercial hub. Um, so growing up, I was always really wrestling with the the, the duality that I, that I was experiencing. Um, you know, mm -hmm. coming from a well-off family, but living in a really, really poor city uh, with dirt roads and uh, you know families are struggling. And and so I was always trying to reconcile. You know how these you know two worlds can exist side by side. Um, we also had a window into the West through through film and, and, and through through uh, cartoons and whatnot. And, and so I was always kind of trying to compare uh, my life and, and, and to try to really understand, you know, at a really early age, you know, you know, why, 
you know, uh, people just lived in such, uh, how, how a city could, could, could coexist with such disparity. Um, and, and I think that was really the, the beginning for me. Um, subsequently moving to the US, um, I still really was wrestling with those questions. You know, why was it that chance played such a profound role in our lives, right? That, that the parents were born to, the communities were born into have such a profound uh, effect on our life outcomes. Um, and so, you know, my vision for the career that I wanted to have really started to take shape um, as I was growing up here. Um, so I mentioned earlier, I was born in, in or I, uh, when we moved back here, we moved first moved to Hartford, Connecticut. Um, it's the capital of, of, of Connecticut um, in, in a very, very poor city. Uh, been struggling for some time. So a lot of my friends growing up uh, were, were unfortunately incarcerated. And, and that was kind of my first exposure uh, to this issue of mass incarceration. I really wanted to figure out um, what was the source of this problem uh, and possible solutions to, to solving it. Um, so after I wrapped up my undergrad uh, degree uh, in philosophy, I actually decided to go to, to the University of Cambridge to study criminology. Uh, and my chief reason for, for doing that was I really wanted to dissect um, U.S. mass incarceration, understand the causes, its history, and also compare our legal, our, our criminal legal system with that of um, other peer countries like Germany and, and the Scandinavian countries who had far more humane systems and much lower recidivism rates. Um, and so what kind of at the end of that work, uh, at the end of my master's work, I realized that um, almost all the focus when we talk about criminal justice reform is, is placed on um, policy and legislation and, and addressing uh, sentencing reform and the power of prosecutors. Pretty much all our focus uh, is on that. And, and I think that's very, very important, right? If we don't have terrible laws in the books, uh, it's going to be much harder to uh, have such a bloated criminal justice system. But the limitation I saw in that kind of one-dimensional focus is that it really left a lot of other critical areas underserved. So we think about the actual carceral experience. Uh, the average American or the average incarcerated American is, is in prison for about three and a half years. Um, so it's almost, you know, college, uh, a, a BA, right? It's a ton of time. Um, and then if we look at the causes of one of the chief causes of incarceration, certainly we, we need to reckon with uh, the country's history of, of racial inequities and, and, and racism. But when we look at the data, what we see is that um, up to a year prior, uh, prior to incarceration, 80% of everyone in state prisons uh, had no income a year prior. 50% uh, had no income up to fifth, uh, up to eight years prior. So when we think about mass incarceration, economics and poverty play a critical role. Uh, and part of what I was trying to figure out uh, as I was thinking about Amelia was, you know, what are some issues? What are some areas that I could, uh, some areas where I could uh, propose a solution that could solve problems at scale? You know, so some of the limitations about uh, focusing strictly on legislation is that we don't have one criminal justice system. We have 51 separate systems. There's a federal system and then each state has its own uh, a legal system, its own priorities and incentives. Um, so, you know, uh, success in one state really is just 
success in that state, one has to then replicate it in, in the other states. So what I was trying to figure out is, you know, is there a problem in this in, in this broader uh, system of mass incarceration that um, can be solved uh, at scale? And I identified uh, prison communication. I was, I was uh, doing a lot of research, looking at work by the um, Prison Policy Initiative, Fair Justice, uh, um, and, and Brandon Justice Center, and, and other kind of leading groups. And what I learned was that um, there was a huge, huge prison industry. Um, there are thousands of companies that profit off of incarceration, um, but at the top of that list are two very predatory prison communications companies. Um, they are valued over a billion dollars. Um, they bring in more than $1.2 billion every year. Um, and their, their business model is exploiting and charging really low-income families that have no other method of con con connecting with their families, ex exorbitant fees for contact. Um, and what that really does is that it not only severs critical ties that families need to make, that the carcerated need to maintain um, to, in order to succeed post-release, but it also hampers the ability of um, educators and, and re-entry organizations and other really critical resources from gaining access to the incarcerated because they also have to pay that toll. Um, so my theory was, you know, why don't we just build an alternative, right? There's so many other free communication services uh, that we have access to on the outside. You know, we're talking on Zoom, uh, there's WhatsApp, there's Facebook Messenger. There's so many tools uh, for us in the free world. It didn't make sense to me that folks who are most vulnerable, who really need connection the most, have to pay up to a dollar a minute or a dollar per email to stay connected. Uh, so my theory was, let's just build an alternative and let's disrupt this industry and push out the, the bad actors. Um, and easier said than done. Um, I wasn't technical, obviously. And so I had to connect with, I had to find a technical co-founder who together we could kind of build out this vision. Um, and that, 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 was a, that was the origin of Amelia. And I'm excited to kind of dive into, into the more details later. No, this is, this is fascinating. And it kind of makes me think going back to like, the, maybe the irony of, you know, we say correctional facilities, but what are we really correcting if we are putting people away and really having the setting up that setting them up for failure, if they are, and maybe very likely that as a young adult, they're incarcerated, and they didn't even have an opportunity to get started in life. And we're already stripping away everything that would kind of maybe help them get pass by that and then maybe start a new life and actually be um you know positive person for the society we're kind of we're eliminating all those possibilities and yet we we've called that correctional you know facilities you know like what were we correcting really just by putting people away and like having them think what they did for like many many years and it, having them live in isolation and it's Really, I mean, I'm not surprised that there's an entire business model around this for someone or some big corporation to make a lot of money. Um, but it's really in, uh, and also not surprising, but also um, very important to point out that the lack of innovation in this too. And, you know, we're talking about, and there may be so many uh, parts to it, we're talking about crime and how we reduce crime and how we can do that before even we start talking about maybe incarceration. There's conversation around that still an area to really innovate on for sure. But then like after somebody, maybe somebody have committed a crime or maybe didn't even like that's a whole other discussion. 
um, or maybe did something very minor, but was uh, put in jail for like many, many years. What, what are we doing then? Like, are there any, and you know, all the things you're talking about sounds very archaic and it's very present, right? Like this large, big, like telephone company really controlling all the communication. It sounds like a movie. Like it, if this were like our reality, we would kind of be like, it's ridiculous. Although in, you know, New York, we had like this like major cable company that like ran things here for like forever and then just rebranded themselves and continue to run things. <laughs> um, but it's just like, to me, it's, you know, after like talking to you, obviously it becomes obvious then you're kind of like, why aren't there more innovations around this? Like mm -hmm. at present. So going in and figuring out all these dysfunctionalities, what were some of the biggest challenges for you to even like, was this a was like having this conversation and talking to people about this too, was that even challenging for people to really understand what's going on or seeing the need for innovation? Yeah, so you, you raise a really great point. Um, and I think that this is kind of one overlooked area in this kind of larger conversation around tech monopolies. Um, you know, when we think of tech monopolies, we're kind of always thinking of Facebook and Google. Um, but in the correction of space, those tech monopolies are Securus and uh, GTL. Collectively, they they own, you know, more than 70% of the market share and, and have a captive audience. They know that families need to stay connected. It's, a, it's an inelastic good. Uh, we all experienced this with COVID, losing connection with our loved ones and trying to find ways to, to mitigate that. Um, but for folks, you know, for the 27 million Americans with incarcerated loved ones, uh, this, is a, this is a problem that they experience day to day. Um, and so I think the lack of innovation in this space uh, is, is the result of, of several reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, incarceration, prison, it's not a sexy issue, right? You know, when you're thinking about really talented um, you know, software engineers at Caltech, at Stanford, you know, a, a lot of their, or just, it seems like the, the way we think about software innovation is that it's really about monetizing, right? It's really about kind of figuring out that, you know, how to make life a little bit more comfortable for the for the folks with 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 wealth right and that's the evidence which you could you know you go public with your ipo and you become wealthy but not enough folks i think are focusing on really intractable social problems and trying to apply their talents to solve them um and so i think there's there, there's a larger conversation that needs to be had around you know what are the downsides of having some of our brightest minds um, not working on these challenging issues, but instead, you know, figuring out ways to get us to click on ads or getting us to like something or, you know, send an emoji, yeah. you know, I, there's that larger conversation. Um, but I also think that one needs to talk about uh, philanthropy. You know, I think one of the really challenging problems that we've, one of the main problems we've had is just raising the capital to be able to build out our system, build out our team, and really be able to disrupt this predatory industry. So we all talk about mass incarceration. We all know that it it cost us um, eighty billion dollars a year, and that's not even adding up the the social costs. Um, yeah. And so it's a problem that we all know, but not enough of us want to take, not enough of us with wealth, right, want to take the risk. And so that's something I've been really racking my, my head around, trying, trying to understand is that, you know, philanthropy should be to take bold chances, right, to um, try to use capital to uh, um, really fund risky ideas, but with the potential for tremendous impact. Um, and so for me, it, it was a no brainer that, 
increasing access uh, to communications. Uh, there's a bunch of research that shows that increasing access to communications for the incarcerated lead to lower recidivism, lead to more successful post-release outcomes, because those are the communities, those are the people that the incarcerated are going to rely on post-release, right? If, if you sever ties with your family, you sever ties with your community, to, to, to community resources, you're going to have a really tough time because you're coming out in a world that looks different and with, with, with no resources um and so for us it was a no-brainer that this is the solution that needed to, to happen but for a lot of the funders we were talking to early on you know they just saw the risks right to them they, they were thinking about you know can a tech nonprofit really disrupt the space um you know can you actually get into prison and so you know what what i want to do with my work as well is to make it easier for innovators like myself and other social entrepreneurs to have access to the capital that they need right it's a, you already have a tough time trying to build and solve the problem but then when you add upon that you know countless hours of pleading and begging uh, philanthropies to give you the resources you need to get started it, it almost makes the work uh, impossible uh, to, to accomplish so I think you know there's billions of billions of dollars that are dispersed each year uh, through philanthropy and I think I, I think our, our, our philanthropic leaders need to be more more risk-seeking they need to be more risk-taking um, and, and, and also, I think part of the issue as well is that, you know, for a lot of the folks in this space uh, who are doing criminal justice reform, I think we need to uh, be a little bit more humble. We need to understand that um, there are a lot of folks out there with other, other talents and, and abilities that could really help us in the work that we do. Um, and so it's it's shedding light on on the problems that we're trying to solve and making uh, creating opportunities for other folks with other skills and talents to be able to, to to help. So I think that's why Emilio has been has been able to scale so quickly and has been able to build such a strong technical team. Is that what we've done? Is that we've shown you know. Um, folks with technical talent, folks with, you know, software skills, that they also have a role to play in, in solving mass incarceration. Uh, my co-founder, Gabe, uh, worked at Facebook uh, for two summers, um, had an, a return offer, uh, but he was really trying to figure out, you know, how can I use my skills to be able to solve problems, real intractable problems? And by connecting with him and, you know, educating him around the criminal justice system, he was able to see, yes, like, I have these skills and I've already have experience of working at a large communication company. I can leverage my skills and, and, and my product engineering abilities to devise solutions that are really gonna help the most uh, folks who are most needed, uh, where it's most needed. So I think, you know, those core issues, um, the, you know, uh, this larger conversation around tech monopoly and, 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 and figuring out where are, the, where are these monopolies uh, um, happening that we are, we are overlooking, shedding light on that, um, getting philanthropy to be more risk-seeking and to be more courageous and bold in what it seeks to fund and not to be overly obsessed with, you know, ROI and metrics, right? Identify the problem, identify innovators, and give them that capital that they need to be able to make things happen. Um, and, and also to uh, for, for us who are actually dealing with these issues day to day to create more opportunities and more visibility for folks who may not know about the problem and can and can actually really really help us. Yeah, I mean, I love so many things about what you said. I'm, what what was making me think? I think the tech industry kind of like went through a phase where. It was also in like self-exploration and almost in an isolation, right? I think a lot of talented, like-minded individuals came together and came up with cool ideas and executed on them pretty fast, grew very fast, and then not even recognizing the potential problems that some of the technologies that were created could cause 
or if they're contributing to a bigger problem too. I think there's more of an awareness around that and the need to really like dive in deeper into our social problems, environmental problems, so many problems in the world that we're going through and have a more collaborative approach than just having, you know, 10 engineers in a room really like putting out a solution, not necessarily considering diverse communities or people like uh, behaviors and all of that and really um, creating a host of other problems too. I think we went through that learning curve collectively uh, in the world and I'm really hoping to see there is more and more interest uh, from talented tech communities and folks to really like take part in organizations like Emilio. So that was my like first thought. The second uh, around what you were saying in terms of philanthropy needs to be um, supporting high risk, but solutions that also really addresses the core and underlying reasons of the problem. I think there's a lot of and we see this in many industries and also in um, uh, ch uh, charitable funds is that there's a lot of symptom treatment, right? I'm sure there's a lot of fundraising happening around, for example, if a family has a uh, one of the main caregivers incarcerated, then maybe there's uh, you know fundraising to support those families in need and all that, but that's symptom treatment. Right, and so if we go back to the beginning, like how we might maybe uh, help an individual first, maybe not get incarcerated, but if they're in, how do we also like help them really in achieving a, a successful life afterwards? What do we do then? And how do we understand the value of representation of those successful examples too? Um, and we didn't touch upon that, but I would love to hear your uh, perspective on that too. I would assume if a community, um, and this probably, you mentioned a lot of the friends that you were growing up with were incarcerated. I don't want to say it's maybe normalized, but if this is something that happens in the community often, then there, the community may also see like, okay, once you're incarcerated, you're done, like maybe after you're going to go back to jail again, um, working there now, very successful, those positive examples. And there's a bigger conversation now around representation, but I would love to hear your thoughts about representation of those, you know, post-success stories too. Mm. Yes. Now that's a really, really great question. Um, you know, how do we leverage the success that we've had to, to basically create more of it? Um, and, and that's kind of what, what we, a lot of the work that we do um, around, um, for us, you know, the, the press that we get is really not only about us um, kind of sharing the work uh, that we're doing or, or trying to attract more funding, but it's about showing that tech nonprofits, that social entrepreneurs are having great impacts in the world and there are other major, major areas uh, that need that same level of, 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 of work, that same level of commitment. Yeah innovation. Um, and so there are a lot of really great companies in the tech nonprofit space that I'd love to highlight. Uh, folks like Upsolve, who have uh, built, uh, used technology and software to be able to help folks who are who are really struggling financially, able to file for bankruptcy very easily. So their work is trying to liberate the legal uh, field to make it more open and not 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 as restricted as it is. Um, there are other folks like, you know, Watsi, um, which uh, basically crowdfunds uh, to support 
uh, uh, folks in, in, in developing countries who can't afford medical treatment. So what they're trying to do is use software and technology to, to, to create a world where, where healthcare is a right uh, and, and, and not a privilege of those um, with uh, financial resources. Um, and so, you know, part of what, you know, one area that I want to highlight is the issue of, um, uh, of, of, of risk aversion. So I talked about philanthropy, right? And so, you know, for us early on, part of the pushback we got from a lot of funders was, you know, they kind of had this macro level understanding of the problem. They knew that there was a duopoly and that there was kickbacks and, and that a lot of states are complicit in this, in this problem but they didn't really have a granular understanding, right? I think, you know, for software companies to succeed, you have to know your user. You have to be constantly doing user research. You have to be engaging with your customers. You have to be, you know, it, it, you can't succeed without that, right? But I think for philanthropy, I think, you know, it's really easy not to be too critical because I think there are some great philanthropists out there. But, but one area of our success that I really want to highlight uh, to both other social innovators and, and, and future innovators and also uh, philanthropists is that, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you do it, right? So you can kind of have this theory that, you know, it's impossible to break into a system um, that uh, has been run by this duopoly for decades, right? But what we did was, you know, a healthy dose of delusion is really beneficial to, to entrepreneurs, right? Like you, you have to really kind of be a little crazy. Um, to yeah. think that you know you can take all these billion dollar companies and, and I think that's kind of what we had we we knew that this was the right solution and because we had such conviction we weren't gonna we weren't we weren't gonna take no we knew that if we built the right tools we we tested it with users and our heart was in the right place that at some point we would break in and so and how that happened was really just uh, you know a lot of connection with other great uh, organizations out there so because of COVID um, it wasn't only families that didn't have access to, to prison and their loved ones, uh, uh, really critical uh, reentry organizations and prison, prison education groups also were, had lack of access. So what they were looking for was a solution. You know, how can we be able to do this virtually, right? But what they were trying to figure out is, you know, could we help them? Could we build a video technology that, that, that would even allow them to regain access to prisons. And we'd already been working on this tool, but what we needed was an early adopter, you know, state DOC that would take that risk and say, hey, you know, we, you know, you guys are an upstart and you haven't worked anywhere, but we believe in what you're doing. We're going to take that risk. And so it was an organization that connected us uh, with the Department of Correction uh, 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 um, executive director. And, you know, luckily he had identified prison communication as a very, very critical problem uh, for his population uh, that, that and he wanted to solve in his tenure. And that was the beginning. We connected with Dean Williams at Colorado uh, and, then, and then the rest is history. Um, and so I think to, you know, would-be social entrepreneurs remain delusional, right? Do not give up in your delusions because sooner than later with enough conviction, with enough, um, um, of hard work, you will make that first inroad. And then it's just about replicating and telling that story over and over again. And, and to philanthropies, you know, recognize that you only have a, a slither of understanding of these problems, right? Like you, you have so many grantees and so many things that you're doing in the day to day, like not to allow your presuppositions and assumptions to hinder your ability to really have impact, right? Just you know, the money's there, it's already been given to you. Um, just be bold, right? Be bold and, and accept that sometimes it's not gonna work, 
but oftentimes it is, right? If you find the right team, you find the right idea, don't hamper them too much with, you know, give us the metrics and give us the proof. It's like, we're yeah. going to support y'all and, and we're going to make sure we have the metrics down the line to prove the efficacy of this work, but we're not going to let that limit our our desire to support you and help you achieve the, the, the change. So, um, yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is so good because like, I think it also touches upon an overall issue about like, how do we even like, how did we decide on and settled on those metrics anyway, right? Like we, we have many problems in the world that are persisting to remain in the world. And obviously we need innovation and maybe some radical thinking around addressing those issues. So we kind of also need to rethink what we mean by ROI or metrics. And do we really need to have that on the get-go when someone's really trying to try something different in order to address a problem that maybe has been addressed, but it definitely does not have any effective solutions. So I think there's a lot around, lot to discuss around that too. Like why I understand maybe an organization needs to justify why they're providing those funds. That's a very legit, legitimate reason, but the, that doesn't necessarily mean that we get stuck on some numbers or some proof of methodology or something from the beginning and really need to change our understanding of um, what do we mean by an outcome, right? Yeah. So I think, and to your point exactly, uh, we see what the problems are. We're not gonna know what the underlying reasons of those problems are until we get in there, right? And to get in there, you need the funding. And so, this, this has to be recognized. It's kind of like, you know, somebody may have a disease and you're not gonna understand the reasons of those disease unless you start interacting with the patient, right? Like this is a very normal conversation for a healthcare professional to be like, yeah, obviously I need to like start, you know, interacting with the patient first. So I think we need to adopt that understanding in like really any uh, field. And first saying, well, uh, everything we say now is gonna be an assumption. We really need to like go in and really yeah. understand the reasons to be able to come up with a solution that is gonna sustain and work and adapt for families' different needs too. And technology enables that great platform for that to happen. And it kind of needs that space and time and budget for it to be really worked with the people that are actually going to use it. So I think your journey is a great, um, kind of example of like what are some of the problems we see on an ongoing basis and um you know trying to find uh innovative solutions for our social or environmental problems um and also i think it's a great example showing you kind of need your champions right like throughout the journey you you need your people that who believe in you and who would advocate for you um, to another organization, and maybe that organization is going to be your first client, or going to is or is going to open the doors for you. So that um, and that ties into uh, I almost want to say, and you know, there there has been a more um, uh, bigger conversation around allyship since last year, but I think allyship could mean in a broader sense, like really being an ally on the problems too, and try to support the organizations who could really bring in a solution. And I think the impact of that cannot, shouldn't be overlooked. Uh, yes. Oh, there's this cool organization that are trying to do that. Like we can't, we shouldn't be leaving at that. I think if we can support in any way and open the doors in any way or connect to someone who might be useful for them, like really 
whatever it is in our means, I think it's so, so important for an organization who's trying to do something that has never been done before. Um, so I just want to highlight that, like based on your journey. And I think all of those are incredible, really learning lessons for like any entrepreneur too, who's like going into space and try to innovate. Um, but with that, I think you already started talking about it. Uh, your first advice being remaining delusional. And I love that. Uh, anything else you want to add? And this can be um, based on your journey or um, just overall attitude and what you're seeing in kind of entrepreneurial space. Uh, what would be your advice to people who are trying to make progress or push boundaries? Yeah, and one th one major advice, and, and I think this is you know uh, pretty intuitive, is because I, I think it's easy to say you know don't don't worry about the no's, right? Don't dwell yeah. on the no's, yeah. right? But we're human, right? We're social animal. We want reassurance. We want support. Um, and I've really had to train myself to not dwell on the nose, right? You reach out to a funder, you give them a great pitch, and they're, they, they not, sometimes they ghost you, sometimes they say no. Uh, you know, you reach out to a potential customer or, you know, some group that you want to work with, and it's the same thing. And it's, you know, over and over again, it's really kind of hard to endure all of that. Um, and so one, one, one advice that I would give is to find a partner in crime. Um, like, I don't think, you know, we, Amelia would not be where we are today. I, I don't even know if we would exist without uh, my co-founder Gabe. Um, and you want, it's important because you have someone to carry that load with you, but you also have a thought partner, someone that is going to see the things that you haven't seen. Someone has a different perspective. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Gabe is um, Brazilian. Right, so he he didn't even know about the U.S. criminal justice system and the problems that that they faced. But what connected him with the issue was a simple thing: is that you know communication, being able to be stay connected with family and be free of financial exploitation, is a universal truth. Right, it's a it doesn't matter if you're from Nigeria or Brazil, wherever you're at. And so I was able to find a partner in crime um, that had skills that I didn't have, that had a different perspective. Um, but that also could shoulder the load. You know, when we'd get a note from a funder, I'd be like, hey, can you believe these guys? <laughs> They're not even giving us the time. And, and it, it, it helped me be able to overcome those moments of, 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 of just struggle. Um, yeah. So that's one major advice I give to social entrepreneurs is, is not only be, to be delusional, but to find a partner in crime is also delusional with you. It's pretty good there. <laughs> That's such a good point. Uh, you know, surviving a no on your own might be a very lonely journey too. So you need kind of that uh, camaraderie with somebody to <laughs> vent on that and move forward. Uh, so that's that's such a good point. Uh, so this was amazing. Anything you would love to, you know, add about what's happening with Emilia? Anything we should follow? Any announcements? Any news? What's coming next? Yes, yes. We right now we're working on scaling. We we launched our video, our free video communication platform in Iowa prisons. Um, we are launching in Colorado uh, um, uh, this month, 
and we're in talks with a bunch of other states across the country. So it, it's to, we're really excited about you know replicating the success we've seen, um, and we're also really really excited to talk about our, our partnership with University of Chicago. So we're working with our three researchers in the University of Chicago to study our intervention. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that being so fixated on metrics uh, is it, not great. Like it's it's it's. It, it, it should complement the work. It shouldn't be, be it shouldn't yeah. prevent the work. Um, but we knew that that metrics are incredibly important, that 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 research is incredibly important. So we wanted to have an you know independent party be able to study our work to be able to highlight what areas have been successful, areas may not have been successful. So it's a three-year partnership. They're going to be studying the effect of our intervention on mental wellness. Um, you know, does, in, does increased communication, you know, improve the mental mental wellness of, of, of the incarcerated and their families? Um, they're going to be studying our impact on prison infraction and, and, and violence. Um, so there's getting access to, to communications, building stronger bonds, getting access to educational resources. Does it, does it reduce in-prison violence? Uh, and lastly, um, uh, which, you know, everyone talks about is the issue of recidivism. Um, so does our intervention help drive down recidivism? Does it help folks uh, be able to rebuild their lives um, from day one? Um, and so we're really excited about that and, and, and uh, we're excited to be able to share some of that in, in the coming future. Um, and um, yeah, and then the last thing that, that I, I would like to kind of briefly kind of touch on is um, just, I think for me, you know, one thing that I really want to highlight is, you know, from the outside looking in, right, like Emilio has moved really fast, we've raised a lot of funding and, 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 but I do want to highlight something that I think kind of underlies our ability to scale really quickly is that, you know, for all the limit restrictions and limitation around social innovation and, and gaining access to funding, et cetera, um, you know, there's also the issue of privilege, right? And I don't mean it in the kind of typical way that, you know, yeah. the way that a lot of us talk about. It. I really mean like real privilege. So I went to University of Cambridge. I, uh, Yale Law student, Yale, you know, all these social networks and social capital that I've been able to accumulate made it much easier for me to get the benefit of the doubt from philanthropists and, and, and other folks, right? And so I was kind of thinking about it, like, you know, suppose I had went to, you know, maybe the University of Connecticut or, you know, community college, would we have been able to get here? And I think the answer is no, or we may have been able to get here, but many years from now. And I think that's a really big failure in the, it, you know, social entrepreneurship or philanthropy in general is that let's not, Let's not, you know, worry about these signals, right? These credentials, these things that are kind of a way to de-risk our investments or our work. Let's be bold and risk-seeking. And if someone comes to you with a dope idea and they don't even have a college degree or let's just evaluate the person, their vision and the problem they're trying to solve um, at face value. Let's just evaluate it without you know, these other heuristics. Um, and because and, and I talk to a lot of social innovators out there, a lot of folks who, who who really want to do really important work. And I think they're limited by this, um, you know, this limitation in our thinking. I, and I think it makes sense, right? You know, if someone goes to an Ivy League college, the assumption is they're smart, they know what they're doing, but let's, you know, find a way to remove ourselves to 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 to, to unburden ourselves of those presuppositions because they're incredibly limiting um so yeah if you're a funder out there if you're a volunteer uh if you're just someone looking to make the world a better place um just kind of abandon those presuppositions that you might hold and and take risks and and just see see see, see where it goes uh, that's something i'd love to kind of leave i 
I love that so much. And I think we really need to understand lived experiences can be, if not more, equally as important as professional experience and maybe branded education stamp, you know, uh, we really need to recognize that people who are close to the problem could have the real solutions. And if we do have the privilege finding those people to team up with and collaborate with as well, to really bring them into an opportunity that they might not have otherwise and going back to kind of like what we talked about allyship in you know in this way maybe um i think it's uh it's really important to you know for you to like you're already even though you had that privilege you're recognizing that um and that problem and it's important for um we have for all of us to have that collective awareness and um really valuing lived experiences as well and in fact i would argue maybe if you're in a community college, you're much closer to a community and probably have like that, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's another episode. But thank you so much, Zoe. This was so great. And um, we very much looking forward to like publish this and follow your progress. I hope maybe we connect like, well, we'll stay in touch. But when we talk like five, 10 years from now, you will have really like disrupted what's going on and set an example to other uh, organizations that are trying to do social innovation. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and we'll definitely be in touch and, and yeah, really, really, really glad to have this opportunity to, to share our work and, and hopefully inspire some folks out there to, to, to jump in. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Have a great one. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. And that is this week's episode of What's Wrong With The Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, podcast.whatswrongwith.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.